It's good to see you all, and um, I just want to begin before I, I say those things that God has sent me here to say, to, um, to tell you how, how thankful I am this week that you are my church family. Um, with, the, uh, with the passing of my father, I cannot tell you how precious the, most precious of all with the prayers, calls, the text, everything that this church uh, did to show their love for, for my family and my, and my extended family, including my mother. I thank you so much for that. And I will add this, not that I was, uh, not that I am, am, am just accepted as it's stated. Let's just put it that way. And that was, as difficult as Wednesday was, I hope you know how much it meant to see my church family there. I was wavering on whether or not I would be able to do what I had to do. And when I saw you there, I knew I would be able to. Do you understand? For those of you who are there, your, your being there was, was so beneficial to my ability to preach my father's funeral. Um, I thank you, church, so much. And um, I love you so much for everything that you've done for us. Uh, now, let's uh, allow me to pray a moment, then we'll read and we'll study. Father God, I thank you so much, God. First and foremost, for the gift of Christ Jesus, Father God, who takes away our sins. For that precious blood, Father God, that was shed on Calvary. But I also thank you, Father God, right now for my church family. God, it meant so much to have them this week, to have their love and their care and their concern. Father God, especially in moments, God, where I couldn't respond to it. I thank you, Father God, that it could be... I could depend on it, and, and I knew I, I didn't even need to ask for it, Father. And so I'm so thankful for that. I'm thankful, Father God, that, that as much as I talk about this being the family of God, Father, that I got to experience it being the family of God myself this week. I thank you for that, Father God. I ask you, please, Father God, to bless us now as we gather. Bless us, Lord, that we can love you and serve you, Father God, through, through preaching and hearing the word. In the name of Christ, I pray now, Lord. Amen. Um, in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter writes in verse 8, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, once again, with, with great with moments like, like um, I've been walking through, over the last few days, they always give us that cause to start to, to reassess ourselves personally, don't they? Whenever your life changes radically in the way that, that, that it can change from time to time, especially through the death of a loved one, it gives you cause to look at yourself, to look at your own path, to feel, just to be honest with you, a, a good bit older than you did to start with. A good bit farther along the path. And I've said this a long time. And I know it's a strange thing because whenever you say this, in church, most of the time, you're not going to be the oldest one until you are. You understand what I mean? And so whenever you talk about age, there's always going to be somebody there that says, but you're not as old as I am. Well, that's true. Until, of course, that person's gone and it's your turn to be the oldest, but we all come to that stage of our lives. We start to think about ourselves in light of the end of life. And we start to say those, those really important things like, am I on the right path? 
Am I on the right path? Now, that's important. That's arguably the most important, and I'll be honest with you, just speaking as a pastor uh, for 20 years, the most controversial question you can ever ask. People don't want you to do two things. People don't want you to question their salvation, even if there's ample evidence that says they should be questioning their salvation. And people do not want you to question the direction of their life. Now, the reason for, 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 for those is, is, is pretty simple. The salvation one, I think there's a lot of people out there that want to avoid the truth. They just don't want to deal with the fact that nothing in their life points toward heaven. Nothing in their life points toward the cross. They just don't want to face that truth. But the other one is just as insidious, and that is I think there's a lot of men and women out there, 40s, 50s, 60s, even 70s, to be honest with you, who've lived a certain way for so long, they don't believe they have the power to change. It's not that they don't think their life is probably on the wrong path. It's just they just don't know what in the world they're supposed to do about it. And they can get really rebellious about those two questions. And they can be really aggressive and attack over those questions because they feel like it's a matter of self-preservation. At the very least, self-preservation of, of, of peace, of their own man-made, manufactured peace. Now, one of those things that I would, I would implore you to do today is let's, let's embark upon a journey that's, that's highlighted by the scriptures and that is devoid of man-made peace and that's seeking of Christ-centered tranquility. I'll be honest with you. If Christ tells you through his word that your path is the right path, then understand this, it's the right path. If Christ tells you through the evidence of your life that your life is a life that has been bathed in the blood of Jesus, then your life is right. Then your future is secure. Don't seek these man-made pills that wash away the truth. Don't seek that. Don't do what we're doing hoping it's right, which I think a ton of men and women in this world do. They hope it's right because everybody else is going that way. Now, I'll tell you this much. Thematically from the scripture, if everybody else is doing it, it's probably wrong. If it's easy, it's probably wrong. So I, I, want, I just want to continue. My greatest fear in this season of life is finding myself in love with things that do not matter. That's where I came to in prayer. said, am I loving things that don't matter? Am I loving grudges and indulgences and these pointless passions of this life? Am I loving those things? Because I want to look hard and fast right now as, as we continue through this. And specifically, in the, in the biggest way possible, what do we love? As the church, as people who proclaim Christ Jesus, who profess to have, who have been saved by his blood. Do we love the things we have no business loving? And are we managing to hate the things that God loves? Because the church will do that stuff. Nobody will turn on worship faster than the church will. Nobody will turn on service faster than the church will. Nobody will. Let it start to cost or get weird. And what will the church do? The men will turn it off in a second. Mistakenly. Hard-heartedly. So we're going to put those things aside. So what am I loving? Look, and now here's this. As a father, fathers today specifically. Now the reason I would say this is because I was, you know, I've just been doing some research and just reading some things just for my own edification. 
And I saw a graphic this week. Of course, it was on Twitter. I apologize. But it was still real. An active, serving father, roughly half of his children will continue in the faith. Highest percentage of any combination. I'll be blown with you. You're the most godly mom in the world and a lot of those kids wander. The fatherly God instilled in, through federal headship so much authority in the position of father in the church. And I'll tell you this much. I'm not saying a godly father makes everything go wrong, but an ungodly father almost guarantees everything goes wrong. Almost guarantees 2%. Ungodly fathers, about 2% of their kids remain in the faith. So, so dad, it's, it's on us. I mean, I don't want to come in and, and not edify fathers because I do want to edify, edify fathers. But this is important. As a father, we have to be the guide and the fixed point which never wanders or wavers. That's what we got to be. Where's my dad going? My dad's pointed at the cross. Where's this family going? This family's going toward the cross. If we have to tear down everything in the way, we're going to the cross. We're not going to be neglectful of what truly impacts the world for Christ. For us, the gospel is the final destination for all that I love. We're going as hard as we can to Calvary. And we're going there because we want to take our family. We want to take our church family with us. My goodness, in a season of death, this ought to highlight more than anything else the importance of eternal life. We shouldn't spend so much time worried about staying physically healthy. We need to worry about how unhealthy spiritually the world is. So what if we're in Christ and our life is taken in a time in which we're uncomfortable? We are in Christ. But there's a world out there perishing. And the world of Christ has become enamored with safety. My Lord, what would happen if we had a first century where Christians were martyred wholesale? In a church that's afraid of its own shadow. As the builder of a home and a church home, I listen to the words like, like Solomon wrote in Proverbs 24, verse 3, that says, By wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established. So we're seeking godly wisdom and godly understanding today. If there's any, that's our foundation. Fathers, mothers, followers, that's our foundation. The words of Christ today. Building in wisdom is not via the world, but by the truth. His father and pastor Francis Chan wrote, Our greatest fear should not be a failure, but of succeeding at life in things that don't really matter. Folks, I am absolutely biblically terrified of wood, hay, and straw. Of reaching the end of a life, worried about finances and worried about retirement, worried about what I'm going to do when I'm 75 and worried about all of these different things and then, then go and meet my Lord and have fire applied to my works and see them burn up like that. 
and think, I spent 75 years in this world and it accomplished nothing because it all burned up in an instant. How many people do we know that are putting aside the cross for the hopes of one day picking it up when they're financially comfortable, when they've got time, and they don't live that long? They're the man building the barns, plotting, scheming to build the barns. And God tells him, mm, your soul is required of you tonight. You're never going to get there. You saved the best for last and you never made it to the last. He had all of these requirements to serve. All of these requirements to belong to God. And what happened? They were never met. But the one requirement that he has for, the, for us that one day we would, um, we would die and then face judgment is always met. Men don't fear poverty or lack of importance or the failure to leave some great construction. Fear gospel irrelevance for your life. Fear the fact that you go to the Lord one of these days living a life that never declared the cross or did it in the most minimal way possible. Fear being a D-minus. Brother Kyle, it passes, but it's nothing to be proud of. It's nothing to go throughout eternity thinking, I earned it. I, I'm, I'm a 65. I made it, but just barely. What a tragic legacy. The money will be spent. You'll be forgotten by the world and homes and buildings decay. But a legacy of the true faith and gospel practice in Christ is for eternity. There's some absolute paupers that we wonder in this, in this world what they did with their money. But understand this much. They will be lauded in heaven. Because they invested where it pays off. And they were surrounded by people, to be honest with you, that invested right here. Hoping this would pay off. Understanding that it never does. The writer of Hebrews reminds us all that the building of a real Christian home is in the power of Christ. He writes in Hebrews 3, 4, For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. We are still in this room, many of us, right now to this day. Even though there are, we have gray hairs, we're doing everything we can to do what? To build Christian homes. And it's so easy to forget that only God builds that kind of home. We can't apply his principles, mix them with sanitized principles from the world, and somehow imagine that we can do the work that only God could do himself. In light of our responsibility to build faithful families, we look to verse 8 of 2 Peter chapter 1. Now look, no passage of Scripture ever leads, to the re leads the reader away from drawing of inspired conclusions that are motivated by the Spirit of God. And why, I mean to say that because I'm on that yearly journey or multi-times a year in which I read through the Scriptures. It's so bragging. I mean, to be honest with you, anybody can do it. It doesn't even take very long. You don't have to read hours a day to read through the Scriptures. A few minutes a day will get you through multiple times a year. Multiple times. But I'm on that journey. And I'm in one of those places where, to be honest with you, you have trouble kind of putting all the, all the, the parts together. So you start to see what God's saying as a whole. And I have to remind myself of just what I told you right there. Is that God is always teaching us in every passage and in every book. There is none that is devoid of Him. The our God himself is not mentioned 
in the book of Esther. But he is thematically all over Esther. And he has God-centered, majestic, infinite conclusions for us to draw. So every passage has us drawing these conclusions. God, what kind of man should I be? God, what kind of woman should I be? God, what should I avoid? God, what should I crave and obsess over in life? God, what's the most important thing? All of these things are over all of these passages. In some way, the cross preached through every passage. The key to unlock the, the joy and satisfaction of life eternal and the satisfaction of life on this earth right now is always a gospel key. And it's wired into every passage. Throughout our time together, we often speak of the impact of the gospel being for a lifetime and not just for a single momentary commitment. I, and I'm, I'm more and more convinced of that. We talk about responding to the gospel and, and we need to respond to the gospel. It is vital that we respond to the gospel. But we need to understand that a gospel response that's wrong, that's been offered many times in evangelical churches, is stand up, pledge something, get wet, then go on with your life. But then a true gospel response is one that begins, begins in an instant and grows throughout our lives. You become more, you belong more to the gospel today than you did yesterday. You belong more to Christ today than you did yesterday. The gospel has infused into your life more and more and more today than it did yesterday. That for a life, for the blood that was shed, the only response is a lifetime response. When we embrace Christ as Lord and Savior, we never go back to being the same. Because the same is what was sending us to hell. The same is an insult to the cross. We can't go back to that. He saved us to radically change us. The passage where you study is a section of Scripture that leads us to that conclusion. If believers will, believers will pursue God by adding spiritual disciplines and characteristics to their lives... If they continue to grow in these matters, they will be effective and fruitful. So we want to be effective, fruitful believers. I want to look up the end of my life and say, my, my goodness, my Lord, look what you've done. I'm a simple man with simple ideas, with no passion and no power, no standing, nothing. And you just used me immensely. The gospel took over. And it did because we dared to grow. Such a simple idea, but it's such a profound idea. It's one we reject so much. Am I growing? Am I becoming more and more like Christ, definition-wise, every day? Am I turning my back on the things he hates? And I'm embracing and loving the things he loves. The gospel is a lifetime dedication to honoring Christ by growing in truth and displaying a more expansive understanding of holiness. He grows this idea of truth in us. We embrace more and more and more and more of his truth. And we understand holiness more. We want to live like him more. Look at verse 8. We now begin to finalize our thinking in this matter of personal growth and faith in Christ. The verse points us toward a conclusion that seems kind of innocuous, but in fact it's challenging. And I'd be honest with you, I found it upsetting. Here's the issue. He says, 
For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The goal, we see the positive. We want what? Effectiveness. We want fruitfulness, right? That's what we want. But he's doing this to keep something from happening to us that happens all the time, and that is that we are ineffective and unfruitful. Which is that people, look at me, in our midst, right here, people growing up, growing old, passing away under gospel preaching. I'm not saying it's the finest gospel preaching that's ever existed. That would be a lie. But I'm saying there's not a man that steps in this pulpit that is not absolutely sweating to try to come in here and preach as well as he possibly can. As well as he can. But there are people that can grow up under preaching, just like you're hearing right now, that can grow up to be ineffective and unfruitful. They can grow old in ineffectiveness and unfruitfulness. They can either live a life that, that, is, that is a saved life, but that those works when judged are going to burn up. And they're going to pass through as one who passes through fire. But there's not going to be victory. There's only going to be mercy. And there are others who are going to grow up ineffective and unfruitful because it reveals that their hearts are corrupt. It reveals that their hearts are wrong, that they don't have a redeemed heart. Now, why would in the world would a pastor want to stand in front of people that he absolutely adores as much as I do and say that there might be someone in here that's ineffective and unfruitful because their heart's wrong? You know why I want to do that? Because the stakes are so high. Because if your heart is wrong and you die, if you've not been called by Christ from darkness into light, if you've not been saved, been born again, any of the justified, redeemed, any of the euphemisms the Bible gives us for the action of Jesus is claiming you from fire, if that has not happened and you die, you will go to hell. There is no leeway in this teaching. The Bible is abundantly clear. With the stakes that high, I'm going to tell you this much. You better make sure about your family. You better make sure about your father and your mother and your brothers and your sisters and your cousins. Everybody you say you love, you better be absolutely sure that they know Christ. Because the stakes are too high. We can't afford it. We can't afford to be wrong. So that's why any pastor, every pastor, ought to walk into their churches and to be honest with you, preach better than me, but preach what I'm trying to say. Because we cannot afford to be wrong. The knowledge that we glean from church attendance, from study and prayer corporately and cooperatively can sometimes produce a faith that is ineffective and unfruitful. Thematically, Peter's writings in 2 Peter chapter 2 and Jude's epistle and 2 Timothy line up as writings that deal with the issue of corruption in the church and the nature of false conversion and false profession. See, the Bible immediately starts warning the church, there are going to be some people in your midst that say they're of you, but they're not. The Bible prepares us because God knew it was true.
We are lambs among wolves. There's no doubt. But God has prepared us with knowledge of the truth. Paul speaks with specificity about this phenomenon when he writes in 2 Timothy 3. It's the most famous passage about it. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 1 says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Now, we understand that biblically speaking, at the ascension of Christ to the right hand of his Father, the, the last days, the end times dawned. We've been in the end times since Christ ascended. That's the Bible's definition. For end times. We're not waiting for something to happen because it's already happening. And it's been happening for 2,000 years. God tarries because he has other requirements. The preaching of the gospel throughout the world. Not everyone has heard the gospel. And until God has seen the gospel preached to every tribe, nation, and tongue, then Christ will tarry. I don't understand the conditions for the, uh, for the satisfaction of that, but God more than does. So, so he tarries because God still has the church at work doing his business. But one day it will come. But we know this, in the last days, there'll be times of difficulty. We've seen these times of difficulty. They grow in intensity. We understand this is happening. But then he describes it, and it's not external things. It's not these external forces that somehow make the world worse. It's not, it's not storms. It's not, it's not crop failures. It's not economic problems. It's people. The problem with the world is people. He says this, for people will be. The next statement in English, four people will be. And he gives a description of people. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money. They'll be proud, they'll be arrogant, they'll be abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. God is so strict about this that when he talks about the purity of the church and the, and, and the, 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 the proclamation of the church and the profession of the church that, that gathers us together, that we're to make sure everybody's real. We're to make sure everybody's true. Because when they're not, we have to avoid them. Because they bring with them nothing but trouble. Pastor John MacArthur called people like this spiritual terrorists. Their goal is to destroy the church. In describing the kinds of people who attack the church and attempt to destroy it from within and from the outside, Paul begins by instructing us to pay attention but understand this. If someone looks at you in English and they say, understand, what do they mean? Oh, they mean understand. They mean comprehend. But they mean so much more than that, don't they? That's one of those heavy words. Its context tells you that you can't, you can't avoid, that you can't, that there's no way you can fail on this matter. You can't afford to fail. If I tell my child, understand this and how to handle a weapon, I do so because it can take his life or the life of another. 
Paul was serious about what he was saying. Pay attention. Understand that the last days are going to be fraught with difficulty because of people. The love that men and women should have for their Lord and for the proper objects of love. Family is now perverted and directed towards themselves and towards money. There he is right there. Clear as a bell. When, when things really start to go off line, not just in a culture, but individually, people are going to become self-absorbed and they're going to love money. What can we not afford to do? Love ourselves or love money. We can't afford to do it. And that's a, you would think you ought to go to someplace really fancy, like East Coast fancy, and talk to all these rich people. I'm here to tell you there's some of us that grow up, grew up so poor that we developed such a respect, or as my dad used to say, that we understood so well the value of a dollar that it, it grew. And it stopped being respect and it started to be love. We started to care about it a lot more than we should have. And I'll be honest with you, I know a lot of people that grew up dirt poor that think like that about money. And I'm here to tell you it's just as corrupting as it is in some billionaire's life. There's no safe loving of money. It doesn't exist. There's no safe loving of self. It doesn't exist. If we do it, it's going to corrupt us. That's like saying there's safe drug use or safe pornography. There's no such thing. You do it, it corrupts you. No way. Unfettered pride, unmitigated arrogance discolor our relationships with abuse, disobedience, and thanklessness. They're disobedient to their parents. Now, I know we sometimes make fun of that statement that Paul makes as obedient to parents because we're all kind of snide toward our parents every once in a while, right? But here's the reality. For Paul, the foundation of the entire society is children obeying their parents. When children don't obey their parents, the society has ceased to be a society and started to be chaos. When parents fear their kids and not kids fear their parents, you have chaos. Paul's describing our times. It sounds innocuous. It sounds Dennis the Menace. You know what I mean? We make fun of these kind of things. TV does. But the reality for Paul is the underpin underpinning of society. Things go wrong when we stop obeying our parents. Things go wrong when we think our parents are a joke. It's another one of those things. You can't have, you can't have innocent drug use. You can't have innocent use of pornography. It's sin. It corrupts. You can't innocently disobey your parents. If you're disrespectful to your parents, you're cursing God. Yes. Did somebody literally just amen that? Electronically? That's the first time that's ever happened. That's a sign. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Look, overcome by sin. Cold, unsatisfied liars who indulge their sinful hearts with dark fantasies and cast everything good aside for the opportunity to satiate their lust rather than serve God by loving and obeying Him. They just become overwhelmed by their most basic instincts. Think about the world we live in. People are indulgent. They don't try to control themselves. They don't try to say no. They make excuses. They go to the doctor. Doctor, fix me. Doctor, fix what I won't fix myself. That's who we are as a culture. Everything's become therapeutic. Nothing is sinful. Everything has become not my fault. 
That's the world we live in. Look, although the world looks this way, Paul speaks directly to the church. Understand, we're looking at the world outside of us, but the church has begun to mirror the world, looking much more like it. Every metric that we've used to predict the doom, the doom of our culture, is true about the church also. Disintegration of the family. True about the church. About the church. Paul speaks to the church with the allegation, having the appearance of godliness. The world's not faking godliness. They love their sin. They want to be defined by their sin. They, they, have, they have flags and t-shirts. They're not hiding anything. They are proud of it. They have parades. It's the church that's faking godliness. Having the appearance of godliness. The church is living one way, but conducting themselves in the body believers radically differently. I'm not making allegations. This is prevention. This is a wake-up call to God's people. False believers are like the sworn enemies of Christ. Discussed in Matthew uh, chapter 23, verse 25. What are you? Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and indulgence. Clean the outside of the cup, but inside it's nothing but rotten. A veneer of faith, whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. Those who are not legitimate care deeply about the appearance of authenticity as an element of their crime. Look, with the desire to fool, to allure, they look real, act real, fake Christian matters, including signs and wonders for the express purpose of gaining traction within the body of Christ. It's everything you see on television. It's the nonsense of a, of a TV Christianity. It's a fake for one reason, to fool people, to take advantage of God's people. And I'll say this, simply put, it's not a kindness not to name them. We are to confront them. We are to call them down. And I don't care if it's, if, it's, if it's Benny Hinn pushing somebody over just so he can get his hands in the pocket of someone who doesn't have enough money to change anything. Or if it's shallow and dim-witted preaching across town. We don't suffer that. And we can't afford to do it. They are a cancer which metastasizes. Paul comments that these people, they profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Detestable, disobedient, unfit. For the faults that deny Christ by their actions, by simultaneously professing Him. This is not simul justice at peccator, of which we all suffer. This is not being simultaneously righteous, simultaneously justified, and a sinner at the same time, because we have that duality of nature. It's not that at all. Your nature of sin that resides within your flesh will someday die, and you will be forever free from sin. You are sinful now, but one day, when you die, you will be sinless. You will never sin again after your death. Your resurrection body will be incorruptible as the body of Christ is incorruptible. We are sinners. We understand that. 
But we are sinners undergoing a progressive mortification of the propensity for sin which dwells in the flesh of the believer until we're released from bondage at death. But this is a lasting obsession with and indulgence in sin that reveals the true heart of the person. And I'll be honest with you, you want to see the true heart? I hate to pick on all these famous guys because I'll be honest with you, there's a lot of unfamous people who are, who are living the same way on a smaller scale. But if he's showing you his private jet, he's embraced the world. If he's showing you his mansion, he's embraced the world. He's a devil. There's, there's no truth in there. Despite what he says, there's no truth. It reveals the true heart of the person. Paul reveals the path on which these men walk when he writes in 2 Timothy 3.8 that they oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. They oppose the truth. They're corrupted. Christian men are truth embracers and not truth opposers. Now, now how does that apply to us right now? I will absolutely tell you into the face of the church at this moment. How many times do we sit around and decide what to do? And we don't ask, what does God's word say? That's opposition to truth and not embracing the truth. And how many times have you been in church, folks, when everybody knew what the Bible said and we still did something else? That's truth opposition. That's not truth embracing. If you don't think it won't infect us, really go back with a lens that God uses. And look at your life and see how many times we've sacrificed the truth for peace. Made an idol out of unity in church. What God wanted was the sword. He wanted to divide some off because they weren't real. We ask what the word says and do not attempt to corrupt it or mitigate its impact on our lives, the family, or the church. When false believers and teachers affect the church, they cause another issue, as, as stated in verse 7. Always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. He's talking about what he specifically calls weak-willed women. What he means is this, is that your church is going to have some people within it who are passionate, powerful, growing and maturity believers who are seeking God. And you're going to have some immature people. You have some people that, that, that aren't strong yet. And they're, 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 they're on the path, but, but they're not good at walking it yet. And they can very easily be swayed in their immaturity. They're not lost. They're just young in the Lord. And they need guidance. And they need a church free of wolves. Why do we drive the wolves off? Why do we shoot wolves? Because they'll lead our, our babies astray. They'll take advantage of young people. They'll take advantage of, of people who are young in the Lord. They're snakes. And with their slithering tongues and their smooth ways, they cause damage. For the weak in our midst, they are easily, easily led astray by smooth talkers and by folksy sayings which are not of the Bible, but of the corrupt human heart. They, it speaks, they speak the, the, 
the, the, the corrupt heart's natural language and reject the truth which roots out sin, which convicts and leads to repentance and inspires the weak to rely completely on Christ who has accomplished everything on our behalf. They're countering what we proclaim. They counter in whispers. They do Satan's work for him. And they gobble up the weak. The true gospel taught and modeled by true men and women does not give us self-reliance or self-indulgence. That's what the world does. But it seeks to make the dead alive and the weak God-reliant and not man-dependent. Every single day here we proclaim a gospel that requires us to look harder at the cross. To look deeper at the word. Paul writes in Philippians 3.8, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. This verse is a fitting conclusion and a point of emphasis for what has been said today. Fear being false, inauthentic, and harmful to the body. Fear that. I believe that is part of the truth which must be stated. When believers are not true, they harm the body either as false teacher or as a willing seeker of such. The goal of 2 Peter 1 is to shore up the ranks of the believers because a strong, God-seeking, growing church is immune to the effects of spiritual terrorism. By making ourselves strong, we are not susceptible to the slimy words of those who would destroy us. In this verse, Paul defines a commitment that we must emulate today. This is your response. He counted everything as loss. Land, job, money, position, family, heritage. Everything. Everything that the world values, Paul says, that's garbage. It's nothing. It's dumb. Nothing was worth the cross for Paul. The place where all his sins were nailed where they were paid for and heaped upon Christ. Jesus is Paul's Lord and his Savior. He does not differentiate. He was not set free to go and live like a Pharisee. He was set free to live like Christ. Paul demonstrates this by rejecting the world and its goods and seeing them in his heart as garbage and not worth the love of his Lord. I'm afraid there's so many people in the church today who are dangerously close to making that dark exchange between the world and the love of their God. We don't love this world. We don't love the things of this world. We must do like Paul did today. The true believers reject the world and the false embrace it. And that is the dividing line. Let's pray together.